Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. So we've reached the end of First Chronicles which is somewhat artificial because it was originally one book, what we call First and Second Chronicles, a single volume, a single story. So we're sort of pausing in the middle of the book. Our plan is to resume the story next fall, Second Chronicles. But it's a logical point to pause because we come to the end of David's story. And the chronicler, these last nine chapters from chapter 22 to 29, has elaborated on what we already know about the end of David's life. And again, the picture that is painted is strikingly different. The chronicler really wants to cement David's legacy. And that's what I've titled this message, David's final legacy. At the end of his life, what is it that David's life counted for? What did it mean? And what did David want it to mean? The chronicler spends a significant portion of space on this question. What is the significance of David for the people of Israel and indeed for God's plan of redemption? And of course, that's significant because David, like the rest of us, faces his own death, the end of his time on earth, and the question of what he leaves behind rings. I think each of us wrestles with that. I recently watched the movie Worth. It's on Netflix. I don't, I, in this day and age, I don't know what comes to theaters and then to streaming services or just straight to streaming services. It's a whole new world of watching movies. But in any case, it's on Netflix. And it deals with the fund that was established after 9-11 for payouts to the victims' families. It was a singular enterprise that the U.S. government undertook to avoid a flood of lawsuits that they believed would not only cripple the court systems, but actually derail the entire economy because of the sheer volume of claims. And so they simply said, we're just going to pay the victims' families compensation if they agree not to engage in lawsuits. And the film follows the course of the lawyer who was put in charge of that work. And right away, there's a question that is raised. What is a human life worth? How do we decide how much money someone gets for their loved one's death or prolonged illness as a result of this tragic attack? And right away, there is a question of equity. The first responders' families come and say, my loved one that died saving people is surely worth as much as the CEO of the brokerage firm on the 92nd floor of World Trade Center 1. Why on earth would you consider paying more to that family than to the family of the first responder? It raises this question that I know we all wrestle with, but I know I wrestle with it. What am 
I worth? And so much of the question in the movie focuses on what these people did, what activity they had engaged in prior to September 11th, and what its contribution was to their family, to society, to the community. In other words, the value, at least initially, is based upon what they did. And I think if we're honest, we often frame this question in similar terms. We answer the question, what am I worth, by answering the question, what have I done? What impact have I had? We're asking the question, why do I count? Why do I matter? We root it in what we have achieved or what we hope to achieve. When we ask the question, how are we measured? What is expected of us? And here we begin to answer this question more deeply. Who am I? What is reasonable to expect of me? What measurement would be fair? And now all of these things that inform who we are, many of which are outside of our control and may cause us to view ourselves as greater or lesser in worth, begin to inform our thinking. Things like family of origin, the situation in which we grew up. Did we have a stable, loving home or did we have some degree of dysfunction? And by the way, all of us have some degree of dysfunction in our families of origin. Some of us just don't know it yet. And we are creating dysfunction in the families of origin for those of us who have children in our homes. The place in which we were born, that we were born in the United States and not in one of the other 191 countries on the planet, that we were born in the 20th or 21st centuries and not in some other century. The amount of wealth that we came into the world with, the economic standing of our family, the amount of education we've been able to receive, our natural abilities and talents, both physical and intellectual, our personalities, our mental health, our culture, the people group that we are among, and then, of course, the things that have happened to us, circumstances of abuse or addiction, the various relationships that we've engaged in that may have left us with wounds and trauma or with great blessings and gifts. All of this begins to create a picture for us of whether we expect to do things that are worthy and worthwhile or whether we expect that our lives will really mount to very little. This is at least the headspace in which I live. And as I talk with a great many people, it is the headspace most of us, I think, live in at some time or another to some degree or another. And one of the interesting things about what the way David's story ends and the way he talks about his story, and we caught a glimpse of it in the passage that Anne read from 1 Chronicles 29. The thing I want you to take away from here this morning, if you take up nothing else, is that the point of David's words at the end of his life, the way he wants to frame this question of what am I worth, and indeed the way that I believe Scripture frames this question and answers this question is that we are not worth the sum of our doings. Let me say that again. We are not simply worth the sum, S-U-M like in math, of our doings. Our worth actually has zero to do with our doings. 
Our worth derives from the fact that we are human beings. It is who we are as humans from which our worth is derived. And so everything that I've just outlined is the way in which our thinking tends to be shaped by this runs counter to what God would have us to see and to believe and to live into. And this has been the story not just of David's life. I'm going to suggest that David had a learning journey to arrive at this point. This is not the starting point for David. This is where he ends up in the Chronicler's telling. But this is the story of Scripture, and so I want to take us back all the way to the beginning. I want to talk about the fact that this is God's story before it is David's story. David is just one character along the way in God's story. And that God's story begins and is centered in God's place. You see, when we remember that we live in God's world, that our stories and the places we inhabit are God's story and God's place, we will do well. And so we take our story all the way back to Genesis 2. And you remember how that story begins. God begins by creating a place. For five and a half of the six creation days, God is making a place. And we often jump to the way in which God places the humans in the place. But it is significant that so much time is spent on the place. We would do well to ask, what kind of place did God make for us to inhabit? Well, first of all, it is a place of abundance. Over and over again in Genesis 1, we are told that things teemed with life and were filled with living things. It is a place of abundance. And the reason that is significant is because the place that we often imagine that we inhabit is a place of lack. Frequently on our lips, or at least on our minds is the phrase, we don't have. There isn't enough of. What will we do if we run out? We're all ordering Christmas presents early this year because of supply chain issues. We inhabit a world in which it seems very real that there is never quite enough. And yet the place that God created was teeming with abundance, more than enough. It was also a place of beauty and delight. God could have created a purely functional world that would have industrially created enough stuff to sustain existence, but God created a beautiful place that was full of joy and delight and was meant to be enjoyed. And then God put the humans into this garden, and it was a garden that God created. It was not some sterile industrial environment. It was a garden that God made and placed the humans in. And that place was meant to be a place of unity and collaboration among a diverse creation. It is significant that in the telling in Genesis, God created male and female together to be the human beings and to image God together not a single individual. From the beginning, it was a community made up of partners that brought something different to the table. But more than that, Adam and Eve's responsibility was to tend for and care for and steward the garden and everything in it. All of creation was to work together to be the kind of place that would glorify the God who made it. And so at the end of the creation account... 
a verse that we tend to read right past. At the end of all of God's doing, God does something odd that indicates that this place is not to be a place of doing. All the other creation stories, the human beings were put there to do something that would be useful and productive to the God who had made them. But not in our story. In our story, God does something odd after those six days of doing. God stops doing and calls it rest. And later in the story, we are told that for the same reason, the human beings are to rest. God's place is to be a place of rest because God is a God of rest. And so those who bear God's image are to be people of rest. And everything about the questions that I phrased at the beginning of the message push us to do. In other words, they push us against the grain of what we were created to be. Well, our ancestors broke the place that God made. And ever since, God has been about the business of trying to restore it. And so from that point in the story, all the way to the end of the story, and as we pass by David along the way in our telling of the story, we hear echoes of the garden, hearkening us back to what we started from, and we hear whispers of Jesus, anticipating the coming of the one who will restore God's place. The place of abundance, beauty, unity, and rest. And in David's story, we hear echoes of the garden and we hear whispers of Jesus. The reason I use the term echoes and whispers is you sort of have to quiet yourself down to hear echoes and whispers. You have to tune out some of the voices that often shout in our minds. The voices of things that we've inherited that have taught us all of these ways that run counter to what God intended flourishing human beings to be. Every page of scripture echoes the garden and whispers of Jesus, pointing us back to where God started the story and pointing us forward to where Jesus is going to bring it to completion. And that's why I love that one of Jesus' many names is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end the pioneer and finisher of our faith. So, as Anne read, David has been marshalling the collection of all of these resources and treasures to build a place for God. Last week we talked about the elaborate nature of those preparations and what started those preparations underway. We come to 1 Chronicles 28, and in the second verse, David stands up to speak to the people he says, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. He had it in his heart to build what kind of place? A house of rest. A house of rest for the ark of the covenant of our God. And the footstool of Yahweh. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest. Now, David phrases this and then goes on to say, and I don't get to do it. There are so many layers of echoes in this story, and we don't have to think hard to think about Moses 
saying to the people, I don't get to go into the promised land. I don't get to see it. In both Moses and David's case, there's a clear reason why. David doesn't get to do what his heart had set to do. To find out, though, we need to go back to a private conversation between David and his son Solomon, who will be the person to build the house of rest for their God. In chapter 22, verses 7 through 10, I encourage you to turn there, because David's a little more forthcoming in this private conversation with Solomon. He says a few more additional things that flesh out this reality to his son Solomon. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of Yahweh my God. But the word of Yahweh came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. David is explicit here, and this is something I, need, I think we need to sit with. David says to Solomon, the reason I don't get to build the house of God is because of the wars that I've waged and the blood that I've spilled on the earth. The violence that I have done. Now this raises a conundrum because we talked about a couple of weeks ago that David's wars were part of his role as the king and that God gave victory to David in those wars I do not have the final solution to what to do with the problem of divinely commanded warfare throughout the Old Testament, but the way that the story points and what God says clearly to David is the fact of that violence, whatever we do with it, cannot have any part in the building of my house. My house is a house of rest. You are a man of war and bloodshed. I can't have you build my house. I think we need to reckon with that. And this is where we begin to see some echoes of one of the early stories following God's building of his place. But there's another aspect of the echo I want to draw our attention to before we look at the echo. In Back to chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. Now David is speaking to Solomon in front of the people and says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. This is that relational knowing that Scripture is so keen on. Our position with the God of the universe is not distant, and it's not formulaic, and it's not transactional. It is relational. Get to know the God of your father. Enter into relationship and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. We're going to come back to those terms. For Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. That phrase is really interesting. That Yahweh understands every plan and thought. Every plan and thought. 
And then he goes on to say, if you seek him, if you seek God, he will be found by you. This is the next verse. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. There is so much in these two verses that we're going to spend some time with because they're at the heart of what David is commissioning Solomon, his son, to do. But there is this invitation. If you seek God, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Understands every plan and thought, searches the hearts. If you seek him, you'll be found by him. He'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. Here is the first echo in this story. It is the echo of Abel and Noah. Abel is the one whose sacrifice was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. Abel understood what it was to have a relationship with God, that he was offering to God nothing but what God had given, that God was not someone to be manipulated or handled. God was not a useful God in that respect. Cain came with the work of his hands believing that what he had done would put God somehow in his debt. And God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. And the fruit of Cain's heart posture, as he reacted to that, was to violently spill his brother's blood on the ground, blood shed on the earth before God. And God comes to Cain and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. He's given the same invitation that David gives to Solomon. If you seek the blessings of God, if you seek what God intends to give, it will come to you, but sin is crouching at your door, and you must master it. And after that, Cain goes out and kills Abel. He forsakes God. Well, it's not many generations before Cain's violence has filled the earth. And God looks in Genesis 6-5 and says this, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Intention of the thoughts is the same phrase that David uses for Solomon, plans and thoughts. It doesn't occur anywhere else but in these two passages. And I think the chronicler is suddenly telling us Solomon has the opportunity either to go the way of Cain and all the earth. And I think David hears echoes of his own life in that. His life has been marked by the same violence that filled the earth and brought the flood. Whatever we do with that violence, it is not God's perfect and final arrangement. God's way of resolving the problem is something different. And so he says to Solomon, don't go down that road. Remember Cain, remember the flood. And Noah's name is a play on words for the same word that means rest. The word rest in this passage is not Sabbath, it's not Shabbat, it's Noah. It's a different word for rest. And it harkens back to Noah's name and that what God is wanting to do is to build a place of rest. One of the really significant things about rest that strikes me is that our way of thinking about rest is I have worked really hard during my week, and so I now deserve rest because I have worked. That is not how God thinks of rest. Rest is God's good gift 
period. We do not work to earn the rest of God. God's rest is simply his gift to us. That is what is so hard for us to understand. We believe that we must work to earn things. And God says, no, my plan for you is to be a people of rest, inhabiting this place of abundance, beauty, unity, and rest. And so God, David is commissioning Solomon to build this temple. He hearkens back to this notion of rest, that the temple is to be a place of rest. So looking back again at this charge to Solomon in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Chronicles 28, I want to look at this other phrase. If you seek him, you will be found by him. He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for Yahweh has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now, if you spent any time in Sunday school at any point in your life, this shouldn't be a subtle echo. Be strong and do it. It becomes clearer in verse 20. Be strong and courageous and do it. Is the echo getting louder now? Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh God, even my God, is with you. Solomon is encouraged twice to be strong. He's encouraged to be courageous. He's encouraged not to be afraid and not to be dismayed. The echo here is the echo of Joshua. Joshua, who is told a number of times, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, go in and take the land, and it is coupled with a promise of rest. Joshua's responsibility that Moses was not able to live to see, and interestingly because Moses in a fit of violent anger struck the rock. It is a similar reason that Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land of God's rest, the place that is to be a place of rest. And the same instruction is given to Joshua. God is saying, I'm choosing this place. I'm choosing Solomon to build it. Well, what is it that Solomon is tasked with building? What is the significance of this place? The place is the dwelling place of God. I opened our service from Psalm 132. Psalm 132 is in the mind of the chronicler in these chapters, I believe. And in another place, it says this, for Yahweh has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, this place that Solomon's building the temple. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Twice God says that this is his desire. He wants to live among his people. This is, this is again, we often come to God imagining that we've got to overcome God's lack of willingness to be good to us. This is what I talked about last week. We can envision God one of two ways, begrudgingly kind or excitedly eager to be good and kind to us. Psalm 132 leaves the question in no doubt. I want to be with my people. I have desired it. I desire it to be my dwelling place forever. It's not as though this is temporary and then I will move on to better digs. As though humanity is some second-class choice. No, this was God's plan from the beginning. I will make a place of abundance and beauty and unity and my rest. And I will share all of it with the humans I delight to live among. Well, the temple in Jerusalem has gone, right? We know that. And the audience of Chronicles knew that. 
They're trying to build a second one, but remember that the chronicler is trying to point them all the way forward. And so what is it that we are to be about? There's an interesting phrase that David tells Solomon, be courageous and strong, and then twice he says, and do it. This is where Nike got their slogan. I'm convinced that David has copyrights on this slogan. David to Solomon, just do it. Just build it. Now, what's interesting is that temples are really useless spaces. It's a glorious waste of space. All of this terrain taken up, all of this expense on the gold and the marble and the silver and the bronze and the wood and the iron and all of it, and it produces nothing of economic value for society. It doesn't advance national security. It doesn't improve anyone's 401k. It just sits at the center of the city as a place of sacrifice. It's not useful. So we wouldn't be inclined to build it. I think this is what David is saying to Solomon. Don't be afraid to waste all of this space and all of this expense on something that doesn't seem terribly useful. Because unlike the ancient gods of the pagan nations around Israel, we don't believe that this is necessary in order to get God on our side. God's already on our side. So it's not even useful for that. So I would suggest to us that what David is really telling Solomon in just do it, build this glorious waste of space that in human terms, understand carefully what I mean, accomplishes nothing. If we are the temple of God, our mandate is to be strong and courageous and just be it. You see, so often we envision what we are as a church as caught up in what we do as a church. Our church is valuable to ourselves and the community because of all the things that we do. And I was really struck this week as I looked at that. That's not it at all. Casual scan of the New Testament. Over and over again, the instructions given focus on simply being the dwelling place of God. Not so much on the doing. Not so much on the things that we often attach significance to. <clears throat> and that comes difficult for us humans because we're doers. And there is a doing to this, don't get me wrong. But we are to be the dwelling place of God. So I want to come back to this charge to Solomon again in verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a delighted soul. That is a better translation of that phrase. For Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then at the end of this charge, he says, And with you, Solomon, in all the work will be every willing person who has skill for any kind of service. Solomon is to be strong and courageous. He's not to be afraid or dismayed. He is to have a whole heart, an undivided heart, a heart that is all in on what God has called him towards. When I was a kid, I, had, I still have just the one brother, and we were like any set of brothers. We would play together, but as often as not, we'd get on each other's nerves and fight. And one time around the holidays, all the family was over, and we got into a really immature spat. 
uh, in front of everybody. And so in front of everybody, we were expected to hug and make up. We did it, but our hearts weren't in it. It was not a wholehearted hug. It was an awkward brother hug. David is encouraging Solomon towards a wholehearted devotion with a delighted soul. A delighted soul. And you know what this is. We are each wired in a particular way that our soul delights in certain kinds of environments and activities to where no one has to tell us to do it. No one has to hold our feet to the fire to get us to do this. You that are hunters, I know, many of you aren't even here this morning, because you're delighted to be in that activity. No one has to tell you, you need to go hunting. You just do with a delighted soul. We need to be about what God has called us to be with whole hearts, delighted souls, and then that last one, willingness. That word carries a connotation of freely, without any force or inhibition, freely given. This is what the people have done. They brought themselves and their treasures freely. And here's what we are to be. We are to be a diverse community. What God is after is not an enterprise that's engaged in great initiatives and works. God is after a community of people who each bring what they have. David says, everyone skilled in various kinds of things. We need everybody all in to be the community that God's dwelling place should be. And that is less about doing and more about being. And you know as well as I do that right now, unity, community, these things are challenging. These things are strained. So I've given quite a bit of thought, how do we be this kind of community? And I just want to offer two thoughts. They're certainly not all that could be said, but they're things that I think are necessary. The first is generous listening. See, when we think about rest and violence, these kind of polar ends of these extremes that are presented in this text, we are called not to be people who try to force or manipulate or coerce or otherwise leverage people to do things. And that is why I think the scripture over and over again talks about patience, and James talked about pa- uh, wisdom being quick to listen and slow to anger. For to avoid the way of Cain and the earth in Noah's day, I think it starts with listening, and listening generously. Listening with an ear that wants to understand, wants to enter into the reality of the person speaking, wants to know their story, and is not listening in order to criticize, correct, rebuke. We must be people of generous listening. And then secondly, we must exhibit patient love. It's interesting to me, I I thought about this, uh, was introduced to this thought over this last week. Love, if considered only by itself, can quickly become corrupted. If we are seeking the good of someone else and they don't recognize it as good, we can often try to compel them into doing what we believe is best for them. And I don't know about you, but anytime somebody tries to force me to do something, I never receive it as loving. 1 Corinthians 13, the first thing that we are told about love is that it is patient. It is willing to wait. 
And why? Because this is how God is with us. God does not force or compel. This goes back to what David said to Solomon. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will let you go. He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into the blessing of his life. That's not his way. But David ends this passage. We're going to continue in worship with this thought. That phrase, if you seek him, he will be found by you. If you abandon him, he will cast you off. Again, the direction of the text points further. It doesn't stop there. David ends his charge to Solomon with this. Yahweh God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of Yahweh is finished. Now, here's the question. Beginning of the story, six days of creation, seventh day of rest, the next day did not start with a whole bunch of creation all over again. The author of Hebrews tells us that God's rest is finished from the beginning of the world. So when is God done with the service of the house of rest where God dwells? Never. So when will God leave you or forsake you? Never. God is in this work of building this house of rest and will never, ever give up on it. God will do it. We just need to be it. So we're going to sing about the victory that God wins from God's house as we continue in worship. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that we would enter your rest, that we would lay aside all of the thoughts that tell us that we are only worth what we can do, that we count and we matter simply because we are your creation, your image bearers, and that we would live as a community of patient love and generous living, listening to put your image of love on display. We ask it because of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I'll have you stand back up in a minute to receive your benediction. There's an epilogue to this story. I've called it the prayer and the picture. David prays after the passage that Anne read at the beginning of our service, the end of his prayer, he says this, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. That phrase, the purposes and thoughts in their hearts, is the same one that David said to Solomon that God seeks after, and the same one that was on the earth in the days of Noah. You see what David is praying for is, God, would you reverse the reality in Noah's day? Keep these kinds of schemes and plans among the hearts of your people. And when he says direct their hearts towards you, it's the same word for preparation that David has made for the temple and the same word when God says, I will establish Solomon's throne. 
God is asking, David is asking God, establish the hearts of your people with schemes and plans like these. Not to live in fear and anger, but to live where they freely and wholeheartedly and joyously, delighted in soul, offer everything that's already yours right back to you. Believing that your place is a place of abundance and beauty and unity and rest. And so grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. This is God's work from start to finish, in other words. And David's prayer in those verses is that God would indeed do it. That's the prayer. The picture comes in verse 22. Remember I said, echoes of the garden, whispers of Jesus. Verse 22 simply says, and they ate and drank before Yahweh on that day with great joy. How often in scripture do acts of redemption get followed up by a celebration of a meal in which there is abundance and feasting. God is trying to tell us something, I believe. My grandmother, whenever we would have family celebrations, my family gathered for celebrations regularly around their large dining room table and inevitably dessert would come around. And my grandma would always ask if I wanted a second helping of dessert. And I would oftentimes say, no, I'm okay, I don't need any. She said, I didn't ask if you needed it. I asked if you wanted it. This is the heart of our God. And Thanksgiving is coming on Thursday. We wanted to live out this picture this afternoon. But I would encourage you on Thursday, with whomever you gather, enter into God's rest by intentionally receiving that as God's blessing. This is the picture of what it means to rest in God, to sit at a feast that God has founded and to enjoy it as his good gift. So now I'll invite you to stand and hold out your hands to receive this blessing from Psalm 134. Come bless Yahweh, all you servants of Yahweh, who stand by night in the house of Yahweh. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless Yahweh. And may Yahweh bless you from Zion, the one who made heaven and earth. So I invite you to go as those who've been blessed by our great God. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.